So I would say, yes, make it as personal as you can. Democratize the access because you're going to get greater longevity if you put on something small and you live stream it or you have influencers that you have engaged and you say, can you share this content? Like, here's what we want to get out of it. That's Kate Roberts. This episode came requested from a friend of mine, Brett Lewis, who is a campaign director at Mushroom Creative House in Melbourne. He messaged me with Kate's name, who I wasn't aware of her before, but I am so glad that he did. Kate is the experiential creative director at Map Projects, a company that's based out of New York. I'm really, really excited to introduce you to Map Projects. When I was living in New York, I was 18, so I moved 2011, so tw- fuck, 12 years ago. Gross. I was living in New York and I was taken under the wing by some friends, girls that were one year older than me, and they were all dating boys that were four, five, six years older than me. One of them, another Brett, had just started Map Projects, which was a production company at the time with two friends. And it's now come full circle because I've built Cinema Tom since I've been home and I have looked up to Map Projects the entire time. Kate Roberts, our guest, works at Map Projects and they do the most insane work. Their Instagram in the last week reads like producing shows with Bottega Veneta, James Blake's latest tour, a YSL campaign with Little Nas X, and some stuff with Tommy Hilfiger at the Miami Grand Prix. My personal favorite was the Fire Festival doco on Netflix that we all saw. Kate is epic, Matt Projects is insane, and this episode is amazing for anybody that's hosting any kind of anything in brand and with the public involved. One day, it's a long lost dream of mine in the future to have Brett Kincaid of Matt Projects on the podcast, but I think I'll scream. I don't have the balls to ask him yet, but I am just in awe. So let's dive in. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land which this podcast was recorded on. On my end, it was the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and extend my respects to elders both past and present. Welcome to Process the Podcast. I'm Arielle Thomas, your host, motion director and social strategist. I can't wait to bring you into the world of some of my guests, Australia and the world's creme de la creme of the creative industries as we unpack their unique creative process. Kate, you are in New York City. We have not met, but you work for Map Projects. So your recommendation came from Brett Lewis, who Brett Lewis is actually one of the creative heads at Mushroom Creative House. You know, Mushroom in obviously in Australia, Mushroom Michael Gadinsky's Mushroom. So he was like, you have to get Kate on the podcast. He is just a stan. I think, I think he just loves what you do. The way he said you have to get Kate on, I don't think he knows you and I may have exposed him. He's going to be like, okay, amazing. I want to chat to him. (laughs) No, I mean, I want to chat to him afterwards. This is amazing. Um, I thought when you reached out, you were talking about Brett Kincaid, who was one of the co-founders. I was. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes. So context for the listeners. I moved to New York when I was 18 and I went to acting school in the States. I went to Atlantic, which is owned by NYU, and I did a sneaky and basically got the NYU training but did it at a much cheaper price. And on my second night there, I was at a party at a Mexican restaurant and it was New York Fashion Week and there was some Australian models that I knew because they'd like gone over there as models and they were only on tequila, obviously being Fashion Week. Meanwhile, I was like, hook me up with a burrito. What the fuck? And there was no one eating. It was so awkward. There was one other person eating, a guy called Jesse. And Jesse and I bonded. We were like, what the fuck? No one's eating and we're at a dinner party. This is so weird. And then at the end of the night, he's like, I'm going downtown. 
who's coming? And I was like, oh, I live downtown. I'll go. Anyway, we got in the cab. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, nothing. I don't have any friends. This is my like first 48 hours in the city. I was 18. I couldn't even drink technically. And he was like, okay, you're coming to Ellen's. And I was like, who is Ellen? He's like, you don't have any friends. So it doesn't matter. Like just get in the taxi. It doesn't matter. Ellen's your new bestie. (laughs) Ellen was dating Brett Kincaid. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. Yes. Yes. Okay. So Ellen was dating Brett and then Brett's cousin Bryant was the under 27s head of membership at Soho House at the time. Okay. And all the girls were probably 20, 19, 20, 21. So they all, everybody had fake ideas. We were all rolling around with just this ridiculous nightlife. But Brett was kind of like this catalyst because he had just started Matt Project. So he was in nightlife and he obviously wanted his girlfriend there. And then being in New York and being 18, you don't go anywhere without your girlfriends. So we were just transported into this like incredible experience. Amazing. All thanks to Brett. Now you work for Brett. <laughs> Amazing. I know it's like such a small world. And since I've moved here, I now have colleagues at Matt Projects who we have like mutual friends. We didn't know each other, but that's all like kind of six degrees of separation. And New York is like such a hub of Australians as well. So we're, we're taking over. And, and Matt is a very diverse company. It has people from all over the world working in it. So it's really, it's a privilege to be there. Tell me what Matt Projects is. It's M-A-T-T-E, but I obviously know what it is. But for listeners, how would we explain yeah. Matt Projects? It contains so many multitudes. It's interesting. So yes, M-A-T-T-E, we're based in Soho in New York. We've just expanded into the West Coast, LA and Mexico City. So we have teams mm-hmm. in those two cities as well. I mean, we refer to ourselves as a creative studio. It's kind of creative studio meets advertising agency meets kind of the company has a lot of cultural cachet as well. So I think sometimes where, to your point with Brett, we're so entrenched in the zeitgeist and the nightlife and the culture of New York specifically that a lot of clients will kind of come to us because we have that relation to culture and we have a lot of contacts and we're very kind of entrenched in music and talent and influences and putting on a great show and making sure everyone has a great time. We have an experiential department, which is what I lead in the company. We also have content division campaign. We have an entire film arm, which is new, which is called Finish, which is incredible as well. And I have a, I have a film television background. So like I'm very excited by the film division that we have. We have an entire production team in-house. Our creative team is 35 people now, I think. When I started, the experiential team was two people and we built it post-pandemic to now it's 12 and the larger creative team is is 35. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, creative renderers, we have creative directors, associate creative directors, art directors, um, senior designers, juniors, and renderers we have people to do fabrication technical drawings you know budgeting all that kind of stuff so it is comparatively to a lot of places I've worked it's an absolute one-stop shop we do content Mm. in-house we do social strategy in-house we have an entire strategic arm we have five different verticals of the actual agency components so they manage the different brands and the different kind of veins of brands so there's fashion luxury there's tech innovation there's automotive there's hospitality and lifestyle. So we have a multitude of different brands that kind of fall under those categories and experiential works across all of them. So I'll, I'll oversee between like 10 and 25 projects at any one time and then RFPs and pitching on top of that. So it's pretty intense. So she's busy. <laughs> she's big biz. She's big biz. I know. I feel like I used to go out in New York and now I'm like the work, the work. So yeah, you don't see me downtown. And, you know, I, I remember when I first moved, 
moved here and similar similarly to you it was like the nightlife and going to Southside and the promoters and all the Aussies and pissing <laughs> around and, yeah I know vintage vintage and now oh. you know Ronnie's got flower shop and yeah anyway so it's such a diverse and robust creative engine yeah is Matt Projects yeah it's kind of hard to categorize one of these days I feel like I'll I mean, one of these days, maybe in like a year, I'll be big enough to be like, Brett, can you come on my podcast? Because right now I feel like he'd be like, shut up, Ariel. <laughs> no, you should. A hundred percent. I actually have so many people that I want to recommend to you that I'm like, you should talk to this yes, person and this person. Do this it. Person. Yeah. I need that. No, your yes. podcast is incredible. Don't, you got to think big. Don't let that tall poppy <laughs> syndrome get to you. No, no live, Brett, the new, I think, live the New York essence. I know. Brett's always had that like, big brother well because he was dating Ellen he was that little bit older and he was like moving and shaking like Brett did not fuck around and I run a production company in Australia now called Tom after my last name T-H-O-M and I've always just looked up to what Matt Projects does in this incredible way like it is every time I go on the website or every time I go on Brett's Instagram or like have a little look see at what's up like it's like oh you just did the fucking Rihanna everything that broke the internet of course you did you know it's wild yeah it is the dream so tell me I want to kind of understand what is experiential in this day and age and while we're also screen heavy because there's a huge juxtaposition there but I feel like Mm. they work in tandem to create an experience and then also take me back to how you ended up here because I reached out to you on LinkedIn and I saw a little NIDA, little NIDA bean on your LinkedIn. Oh, are you familiar with NIDA? Yes. I went to acting school. Of course I am. Oh, okay. Right, right. Yes. I, I feel like so many people don't, specifically over here, so many people don't know about it. And I'm like, it was a prison. It was a creative prison and I was there for three years and served my time. I, I think I, I can come back to NIDA. God, we could talk all day. I really think my, my opinion about NIDA it really prepared you for the rigors of the entertainment industry. And I think trying to explain it to people, it's such an abstract college experience that, you know, Mm. I would look at my friends across the road at UNSW who were studying architecture and they would be like, oh, we have to go in for a lecture. It's two hours. And then I have like the next two days off. And I was like, well, I've been here for six days straight, 8 a.m. till 11 p.m. And they just stopped letting us sleep under our desks. And it really was so rigorous, but so brilliant and so inspiring. And I mean, you you would already know this, but I guess for the people who are unfamiliar with NIDA, it's a vocational theatre school, essentially. So you're yeah. going to lectures, you're sitting in classes, you have guest lecturers come who are prestigious, prolific in the industry, who come and talk to you about like the realities of the of the business. And, you know, you have someone that designed the, the Sydney Olympic ceremony, you have someone that designed the latest opera that is designing for Belvoir. And at the same time, you're also designing and producing and executing live ticketed theatre productions that people come to. So you have Mm. to kind of, when you join the school in the first year, kind of assisting the senior students, and then you end up becoming the person that's working with a real director that is creating a narrative that has the red thread and the responsibility of executing the script and dressing the actors and designing the costumes and designing the set and doing the execution and managing the workshop and I think particularly for me beyond an education and having that physical and very tangible experience you have to learn how to communicate your ideas and I think Mm. 
maybe in a different situation that isn't a vocational scenario where you're not actually collaborating with a lot of people and you're kind of sitting in your corner and you're like building your model and you're just sort of doing hypothetical projects when you're doing physical executable projects that people come and see and there is a deadline and there are going to be people walking through those theater doors you have to learn how to collaborate you have to learn how to get your ideas across you have to learn how to sell your ideas and get people on board and be invested and incentivize them to come and like put on the costume or build the set or paint it this way or whatever it is and think holistically about the guest experience and the attendees and the people that are sitting in the theater and how do you I think that was my first kind of instance in how do I make it immersive I was always trying to wrap the audience around and like stick them in Mm. like I didn't want anyone I sort of wanted to feel I don't remember the name of the, the production but there was a production where it was set kind of in a prison cell and I actually did a modern take and wrapped the entire audience in the cell and you know production was like oh my god you're killing us with this egress and this kind of emergency exit no one's gonna be able to go to the bathroom and I was like <laughs> it's like hyper immersive and everyone's gonna feel like they're really in there with the action and etc etc so that you could kind of push the boundaries within within the realities of you know those limitations anyway that was a long spiel about NIDA no but it's so important because I think I had a really similar experience at acting school and it gives you so much grit. And then people are like, wow, you work so hard. You're like, is there any other way to do it? Like, what do yeah. you mean? Like, it's it's wild how those, the arts, there's like a very fluffy version of the arts and then there's yeah. the arts. And it's like, it oh, definitely, okay. <laughs> it, 100%. It's like, oh, okay, you're a NIDA soldier. Like, I get it. And I think that was, yeah. that's the interaction. That's the response that you get when you graduate is like, you stuck it out for three years like you're committed to this you're so dedicated to it and I know that if I brought you onto my team you're going to work like tooth and nail and you're going to be committed to it so I think that alone opens doors for you because you've made made it out and hopefully you're still so inclined to work in the industry and as hard as it was I have some you know I, I don't really have any bad things to say about it I, I don't know what the landscape is now but it it really gave me so much and you know knowing people like Kate Blanchett and CM uh, Catherine Martin and Basil Ehrman who I later worked with also came through NIDA and I think you kind of have this like camaraderie that you're like we know we, we know <laughs> the trauma it's like trauma bonding trauma bonding oh, I'm turning people off NIDA it's a great place everyone go go <laughs> so good <laughs> so good you'll never see your family or friends again but it's amazing but there is something amazing about that like how committed you are and I think that's your next I'm just gonna go up the LinkedIn vertical because that's how my visibility on you but then you did everybody calls Catherine Martin CM the lingo but then obviously you did catch the sights of her so how did that relationship come about to then work with Catherine who is Baz Luhrmann's wife right Baz Baz Luhrmann's wife longtime collaborator she's a production designer and a costume designer and and that's what you study at NIDA you know you do a BFA in set and costume design so you cover both disciplines so my journey with Baz and CM I it's sort of very intrinsically linked to my time in New York my journey to New York so I spent the first half of my career as a freelancer and had opportunities in film and television and actually designed a film for Paul Waters, who was a partner with Baz at the time. He produced Moulin Rouge, he produced Australia. So I worked with him on a short film for Tropfest, actually. It's very Australian. And we had kind of kept in contact. We'd done a couple of other films together. 
while I was freelance. And then I guess to cut a long story short, I had first moved to New Well, I'd come to New York as a tourist in 2012, fell in love instantly and was like, oh my God, I have to turn my entire life upside down to figure out how to live here. <laughs> yes. Like, um, and spent some time living here. I would do like the 90 day tourist and try and meet people and try and make connections yeah. and then fly home and then fly back and became so burnt out because I was juggling my Australian clients. So I do the New York hustle during the day over here. And then I'd log on at night and work on my, you know, my Australian clients, my Sydney work. Right. And was like, I need to find a way to just pull up and commit to New York and find out a way to be here full time. So was back in Australia, essentially packed up my entire apartment, sold my car, put things into storage and was like, I'm giving myself 90 days to make this work in New York. Otherwise I'm going to give up the ghost. I'm going to commit. I'm going to like put my roots down in Sydney, you know, do all that and flew to New York. I think it was like a year and a half later, maybe two years later on my first night here of my 90 day, my 90 Mm -hmm. day, hurry up Kate and figure it out. I got an email from Paul And he was like, CM's looking for a creative collaborator. She's, you know, they're doing a Chanel film. They're doing the Fayena Hotel in Miami. They were at the early stages of Elvis back then as well. Mm -hmm. So it was just a lot going on. And they were in the process of relocating to New York as well. So it sort of was serendipitous that I could figure it out and be a part of their world whilst making it work and it was also an incredibly intense experience. I think I've never seen any two people work as hard as they do. It's literally 24 hours. Like they live and breathe creativity in their work and they're constantly immersed in it. And it was such a privilege to be a part of it mm. and to see behind the curtain. And I think also what's special about them is sometimes you just see that they do films and they're just doing production design and they're just doing direction, but they were also doing the Fayena Hotel remodel. So they were doing everything from like designing wow. the Wedgwood plates to like choosing the lamps and doing the interiors. And, you know, CM has her range of homewares and the rug collection. And it's just like their level of detail and consideration. And it was so different from anything that I'd experienced and the level of output that they're constantly doing. I was like, oh my God, I need to be around these people. And that was really incredible to be a part of and to see the way they worked and to get immersed in that. Yeah. So I wanted to find a little bit of balance and I interviewed with Viacom to head up their events and brand experience department. Mm -hmm. and pivoted over to there and I think what was super attractive to me for that position is it wasn't unilateral it wasn't working with one singular brand it felt a little bit to me like I was back freelancing that I could work with BET and MTV and Comedy Central Mm. and Nickelodeon who were all under the Viacom umbrella and to have that level of diversification with creativity and clientele and execution was really appealing mm-hmm. and was there for like seven years and had a brilliant time and had some really incredible challenges and projects and 
intended to go back to freelancing and then had been following Matt projects for a while and really inspired by their work and thought they were fantastic and so different to what I'd experienced, you know, in the corporate environment yes. of Viacom now, who is now Paramount for anyone else who's like, who's Viacom? Is it that old, mm-hmm. like C- VHS? Viacom. Like, Viacom. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so now Paramount and Yeah, I had intended to go freelancing, knew about Matt Projects, heard that they were looking to rebuild their experiential department post-pandemic, where, you know, a lot of the experiential and events teams just got completely wiped out and was really excited by that opportunity to again build a team from the ground up and be a part of this particular company and the level of creativity is inspiring and it's like I'm constantly surprised every day and that's how I got to Matt, another long-winded journey to to today. Did you know? Brett socially like through Ronnie Flynn and all those boys no I knew Ronnie through a friend of mine and who was actually Ronnie's sister in Australia who was an actor as well yeah um, I've never met her but I know Luke I mean I don't know Luke quite well we frequent each other's lives yeah a lot (laughs) it's the it's the orbit it's the Aussie orbit no 100% no and I didn't know Brett I didn't know any of them I think again we had like six degrees of separation that I Mm. was friends with someone who was friends with you know who went to school with Max and had a very you know casual interview with Max I think he was like moving his car because it was alternate side parking the street sweeper was coming in and he just like dialed me in and we had a little chat and he'd seen my portfolio and kind of knew a little bit about my background and um yeah and I've been here for just over a year now wow yeah amazing kind of like makes sense when you break it down into NIDA to CM and Baz to Viacom like I get it it's a very linear journey really not linear but then also if you know each pieces of those puzzles and the rigor and then also the brand savviness that you would have had to encounter in corporate and Viacom it I get it yeah <laughs> Matt, I, Matt Projects is like the best place for you ever it's the culmination and I think it's like a fast-paced it's creative it's it's innovative it's tech forward yeah. we're always kind of pushing the boundaries and I think it's interesting because neither is first and foremost a theatre school, mm. but I think if you can design in a box for an audience, you can design for film and television. And that really captured mm. me. I was so interested in film and television, graduating from there, which is obviously Baz and CM's realm. And I think I just, it's funny because when I was at NIDA, I'm like, I just don't want to have a three hour conversation with an actor about what their sleeves mean to their character development. I just wanted yeah. to do like cool shit yeah. that was fun <laughs> and incentivize people to come and that, you know, concerts and mu- and like films and music videos. And I just, I was kind of captured with that and still cared a little bit about the narrative, but I was like, I don't, it feels a little onerous to be like talking about what the cup means to the character yes. and, you know. A hundred percent. The word experiential, break down your kind of department for me. Like, I have an understanding of experiential, but I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. Yeah. Experiential, I think, is a term that has popped up, I think, relatively recently. And it is, in short, it's kind of human-centric experiences that are usually tied to a brand or a product. So they're like physical manifestations of a brand or they're extensions of a campaign or a product launch. It's very diverse. It's very multidisciplinary. It can be uh, experiential kind of covers events 
it can be PR stunts, it can be pop-up stores, it can be product launches, it can be hotel programming, it's conventions, it's fashion shows, it's concerts, it's exhibitions, it's influence okay. events. So it's kind of like it's not cut and dry events, but it also, it runs the gamut of scalability as well. Like it might be a seeding kit that we distribute to influencers and we get kind of virality and shares off that. Or it could be a fully blown out $80,000 stadium show that might be tied to a particular talent that we're talking to. Or we could do a smaller product launch or it could be like an influencer luncheon or something like that. So it's still ephemeral in nature. It's still kind of at the event landscape, but it has Mm -hmm. a longevity and it has a spirit of longevity to it that we obviously want to provide to all of our clients. And the best experiential events are activations that are highly socially shareable, Mm. they're interactive and they're memorable. So you want people to have that interactive experience and you want them to kind of share it with other people. You want it to have a level of virality and you want them to have a takeaway. Like you want them to remember how they felt in the moment, whether it's that like a sensory exploration or, you know, whatever the expression, it, it covers a multitude so I don't know that that really like narrowed it no, down. No, 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 but... 100%. Talk me through how it actually works when like a client comes to you. How do they brief you and then how do you pitch back? Or maybe start with yeah. some examples of like clients that you have just finished up on so that you can actually like speak to. We have done some recent pitchbacks. I think we did one recently for London Fashion Week for a cosmetics beauty brand that wanted to activate in and around London Fashion Week. They're not a fashion brand, so they don't have Mm -hmm. a show, but they wanted to capture the market and they wanted to get really like the incentive is to leverage the people that are in town for that period and make sure that they have a place to come to they can kind of do touch-ups there's brand immersion there's brand education they have a good time there's hospitality incorporated into it so I would say that specifically has a lot of experiential elements to it that have like product display interactivity It was very tech forward. We respond to making recommendations for venues. We make recommendations on programming. We make recommendations on who the musical talent should be, who could host the event, who would really incentivize people to come as well, because that's such a big part of experiential. Like it's not necessarily a build and they will come. Like you have to entice them to come (laughs) and be like, what's the takeaway? Why are they getting off their couch? Why are they like putting real pants on to come to this event? Like, are they going to get a giveaway? Are they going to get a unique experience? And I think further to that as well, boots on the ground and people in the space, you also have to consider the democratization of access, right? So after the pandemic or even during the pandemic, when we were all going online, Mm. this pivot to now we're back in person but how do you reach an extended you know psychographic of people how do you reach the people that are at home or maybe in a different city or in a different country and Mm. still want to get access to it can you live stream it can you dial them in do they have a qr code that they can activate can they you know are there cameras that are broadcasting what's happening in the space at any one time can they dial in and have a personal interaction Can we send the person at home a seeding kit ahead of time so they have the Mm -hmm. product, they can smell the scents, they can do the tasting at the same time? 
So there's all those kind of things to consider, but I would say as far as pitching, as with everything, clients have different levels of information that they share. Sometimes it'll be like, here's your budget, here's the vibe. Mm. And then you've kind of got to dissect it. And then other clients will put together an entire deck for you and say, here's our brand guidelines. Here's what we're trying to get out of it. Here are our KPIs. Here is our regular clientele. Here are the influencers and the brand yeah. ambassadors that we're working with right now. Like, please consider them and incorporate them. So it is, it's just like different. I mean, it's different every time and the budgets are different and the locations are different and the level of expectation. And I think, you know, luxury clients' expectations might be different from like a liquor brand who just wants to throw a really cool party and make people prioritize that liquor the next time that they go out. Yeah. And I would say in general, pitching is, it's kind of what we put in the deck is a fusion between event design, creative strategy, and PR to hit all the KPIs. And I think the thing to remember is that we're in a service industry, Mm. but we're also kind of in advertising and we have to sell a product or a brand in a really compelling way. And I kind of call it story selling. Like it's a little, it's a a fusion of like storytelling and and selling an idea without being so overt. And so like, let's do a convention of brands and just put the brand everywhere. It needs to feel intrinsic and inherent and it needs to honor the brand and the level of execution and the people that are coming. So it's more sensorial and, and sort of innate rather than like, brand everywhere logo everywhere yeah and you know kind of kind of shove it kind of waterboard the guess with branding and then I think the other two considerations with with pitching for me particularly I'm a pretty staunch pragmatist when it comes to budgets and I (laughs) (laughs) the creatives like hate when I do this and when I when I start to edit when I go through with my art director eye and know how much things cost and I'm like guys we've got to pair it back. We're never going to hang that from the ceiling or like that's Mm. a 50 foot LED screen and we can't do that. So I think part of my responsibility with pitching is like guiding not only the narrative, but also the creative execution and the realities of the situation, like the practicalities of engineering and, you know, supply issues and all that kind of stuff. And will it, will it hang? Can we rig it? Is it too heavy? Will it get there in time? All that kind of stuff, because I hate to overpromise and underdeliver that's like my makes my skin crawl to yeah. to pitch something to a client and not be confident in wow our level of execution and i think finally with pitching in addition to editing down for budgetary reasons it's like edit 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 don't be so preoccupied with your value proposition as a company or as an agency or as a creative that you put so much into the deck that you're diluting the essence, that you're diluting the ask. I think a lot of times agencies, you know, I'm not using Matt as an example, but Matt has so much in-house. We can do the content, we can do the social strategy, Mm. we can do, we can execute, we can do this, we can do the content, we can do the out-of-home campaign. And I think it can sometimes be a little bit of a trap for companies to be so preoccupied with the value proposition that they add all of that into the pitch back deck. And then the actual like answer gets so diluted and it's legitimately called the dilution effect. And it's when you overwhelm your brain with so much information that you kind of lose the essence. So you lose the priorities. Mm. And so I would say like, if as a company, you know, you want to move forward and you want to say, but we can also shoot the fashion show and we can handle your social strategy add that as an addendum, like answer the question, answer the big question first, and then put your value proposition at the end or add it as a separate deck and make sure that the client's 
ask is the priority for the pitch back. Mm, very good advice. True. I, I find that as well because like even working in the film space here in Melbourne, everyone's like, yeah, let's also like offer all this other stuff, like all these social cut downs and like, let's do that. And you're like, they haven't asked for that. Sure. And then it just gets, can get out of hand. And then they end up going with the pitch that is exactly what they asked for because it yeah. is like fitting a square into a square and it matches exactly. and they don't have to They're think like, about anything else yet. hundred percent. Or they don't have to have the awkward conversation. We just want what we asked for and like don't worry about the content <laughs> capture and thanks anyway for the social strategy <laughs> and like we have all that in-house. And so a hundred percent, they're just like oftentimes we'll just go for the succinct answer, the person that got yeah. straight to the heart of like they got to the meat of it. And I think you can always send the capabilities deck after the fact and be like, we're a killer company, like, or I'm a killer creative, I'm a killer independent designer and here's what I've done. And yeah, let, let them make that call and peruse it when they have time. Yeah, definitely. When we speak to Experiential here, there's lunches with beautiful table settings and photographers and then everybody got gifted the stuff a little bit in advance so everybody already has the product they could potentially use it feel it be tactile with it and then the event is essentially just so that everybody shares it online on socials the food's great there's a little bit of a chat there's usually an MC having a little chin wag with someone from the brand doing that it's kind of like so uniform now how to mm. host an event like that and it's kind of got expectations to it of there's not a lot of surprise and delight happening in the Australian market what are you seeing in experiential that's like either from map projects or something another brand that's like wowed you recently to actually be like no no we're taking it to another level now yeah, I totally agree. I think even over here, sometimes that can happen that it's so, um, so cookie cutter. And so like you do the thing, you send them the box ahead of time, you want them to share it, you give them like yeah. words to say, all that kind of stuff that you have them show up to a location. I think the way that we're sort of pivoting or expanding that idea is through venues. Mm -hmm. We're currently working with a brand who is doing an influencer trip and we're doing it on the West coast and we're using this incredible private residence that is just like a mirrored cube in the desert. And it still has the format of like, they're coming to have a masterclass and they're, and then they're having a, you know, a lunch, but it's a unique location. It's kind of unique transport to get there. It's a highly curated guest list. And it still has like a lot of the same trimmings. It's still like a mm. seating kit. It's still, it's still interactive. There's technological components to it. I think we're sort of working with holograms now and we're trying wow. to figure out how you incorporate technology of the moment without it feeling over-engineered and without it feeling inauthentic because mm -hmm. you still have to be like, okay, we as a company or me as an individual or them as a creative they love this idea of doing these holograms or this kind of light up, you know, 3D installation doesn't make sense for the brand. Are they going to go, mm, that really has nothing to do with what we're actually executing, but it's cool. <laughs> and sort of finding that fine line of how do you make it feel forward thinking and still authentic to the brand? 
And as far as kind of other executions, we're doing everything from touring events. So we work with a whiskey company, a really fantastic whiskey company out of Scotland who know their aesthetic, they know their brand, and we've worked with them for two years now and we put on kind of a sampling event that tours around and it's we custom build the bar and we custom build this kind of LED surround um, installation and mm. we have the content curated and the content is AI generated and it's kind of guest reactive so you can make a noise or input a word or, you know, move around it and it sort of reacts to you. So I think the AI generative art is also a big component to things and using light in unique ways and you know leveling up hospitality and things like that is always interesting rather than just having a sit-down meal like how do you make an interactive is it family style is there kind of a perfumery moment mixed into Mm. it before you come to the table do you move around to different tables you're not just sat next to the same person at the same table the entire time so I think that there's just like a lot of different ways to express and execute depending on the needs of the client and you know we're even doing things like working with hotels who are trying to level up their in-house programming Mm. and say how do we make sure that we're like the go-to spot how do we get the Met Gala after party how do we become the downtown hotel that people come to before they go to a concert or something like that so it's everything from collaborating with maybe the nightclub of the moment hosting a night at that specific hotel and Mm -hmm. making that a moment or the hotel might identify okay this is the demographic that we really want to get in with what music are they listening to do we host that musician at our hotel Mm. do we have the budget to do that if we don't why don't we organize 10 g wagons to take the influencers (laughs) from our hotel to the state yes like or whatever like tesla trucks or whatever it is helicopters (laughs) and we might not be able to like host fred again at our hotel but we can host the influencers for a pre-game like for a cocktail reception and then we'll transit them to the stadium to go and see him so it's kind of like identify who you want to go after or who you want to relate to or what your customer base is and then curate experiences based on their interests and sort of take the experience to them sometimes if you don't feel confident or you're like, we're trying to build a brand awareness or we're trying to, we're opening this new store, we want people to come, how do we incentivize people to come and and have a good time is is the takeaway. Can you speak a little bit to AI? Because I feel like that's the piece that is really going to make people's ears prick up of like, oh, AI, like I think there's, parts of AI that we're really aware of being quite helpful and then there's AI that's beyond the Australian market of what's what how people are actually using it in events and stuff right I think the way that we're using it is instantaneous kind of generation at events whether or it's it's usually obviously on an LED screen and we have kind of live capture or we can input words pre-event And it has this kind of ever-changing environment that we tie to a sonic installation, that we tie to, you know, sensory kind of centered areas to make it feel hyper-immersive. I think we're still very much at the cusp of what we can do. Mm. I think sometimes it's like, is it motion reactive? Are we moving the visuals in real time? 
Are we inputting a word that kind of changes the algorithm? Are we moving through a space where the algorithm is changed based on how long we look at things? You know, there's there's retina kind of capturing that can see how long you look at something, where your eye is drawn to and focus more on that area or change that visual. Mm-hmm. So I think that is kind of like hyper immersive and it makes it feel very unique and very specified to an individual's experience where it's not just like we've created this content and we've thrown it up on a screen and everyone's seeing the same thing. So I think that's kind of really interesting and you can change the visuals depending on the clientele, obviously. So the whiskey right. brand is one of the one of the brands that we work with and we've created content for them before. I also did a job with, we did this project with Essence Burberry in their Chicago Burberry flagship store and we had AI generated content. And I think sometimes you can look at it and be like, oh, Burberry, AI generated content, like did the two go together? But the narrative and the kind of storyline that we built around it was elements of nature. It kind of had this elemental feel to it. It was looked highly tactile. It was kind of a fusion of cityscapes that morphed into river landscapes and kind of aerial Mm -hmm. views. And it had this cacophony of sound. So it sounded sort of like you were coming in off the street the hum of the taxis and the cars and things like that. And then you had this more natural sonic landscape that sort of drew you in and Mm. created that dichotomy of, okay, I've been out on the street. That's kind of chaotic. Now I'm in this really luxurious environment and blended the two together really well and felt luxurious, felt elevated. And that felt quite successful. And it was just a joy to work on that particular project was a joy to work on and to collaborate with and, that's another one of the brilliant things about this company is that we really prioritize working with originators and artisans and people who are really at the forefront of their craft and being able to bring them in as artists and lend their creativity to these projects as well is really special. And then AI for pictures and renderings, I think is also another interesting component Mm -hmm. when you're, I don't know if you use mid journey or whether mid journey is something that your listeners might might take part in so mid journey is essentially an ai generated rendering tool so you can you essentially type in words that you want to see the visual of and it translates the words and sometimes you can upload visuals and images and it sort of translates those as well so that is also being adopted quite frequently and i think is helping pitch back and create swipe and reference images that maybe you can't find on google that you have a specific <laughs> image in mind and you're like i spent three hours trying to find it on google or pinterest or tumblr or what, yeah. you know whatever it is and i can't so i'm going to create it for myself and i think it can be a fantastic tool i think there might be a hesitancy particularly in the the creative industry of like I'm a renderer, is my job going to be replaced? And my opinion on that is the AI tools are only as strong as their prompters. They're only as strong as the creative that is putting in the prompts. They can't operate, you know, solely. They can't operate independently yet. So I think they still have to be driven by creatives and they still have to be given very clear directives. And similarly to ChatGPT, you know, I think people are adopting that from a copywriting perspective. They're using it to help write emails, Mm -hmm. to help write copy and explanations and blurbs and descriptions and things like that. But again, it's only as strong as the person that's operating it. Yeah. And I would just say use it to your advantage. I think don't be afraid of it. I think you, you play in it and then you kind of learn through doing is the way to do it. And 
use it to your advantage because I think the people that don't adopt AI are the ones that are going to get left behind and I think the people that use it as a muscle rather than are intimidated or kind of threatened by it they're the ones that are going to create efficiencies in their workday and (laughs) make it work for them really. When you speak to like for the I'm not sure which brand it was but it was you touched on it how there was things in AI in retina recognition and having something then move on or change because of the amount of time that somebody looked at that. Mm-hmm. What are the names of the teams that are being assembled behind that kind of artistry? Like the the vendors who are doing it yeah, and like, those kind like of technicians? What, yeah, like what is the name of that technician? Like what is is he uh, – he's not like what's his title? What's he doing? Like I'm a director, yeah, you're an experiential. What is he? That's fine. Uh, a retina technician? I don't know. I honestly don't even know that we're, we're there yet. I think the people that are within that technology have come from the production side or have come from kind of technical direction, audiovisual, and are sort of very interested in that track. I, it's a great question. I don't have the title in my mind because I think there's even people that I've worked with who have technology of like heat mapping so you could be in an experience and you're kind of being tracked around what your kind of customer journey is and at the end of the event you might get this like beautiful charcoal sketch or you get this kind of digital imprint of what you spent time doing and the journey that you went on it's a great question I think it's all TBC (laughs) yeah somebody who does it get back to us yeah because I'm like whoa like you know how when you're interested in an industry but then you're like, hang on, if we actually peel back the hood, who is the the t- job titles and like who's doing what in that to make, like we understand film production and we understand it at a very vertical kind of a way and we get, and in music engineering, I see it, I get it, but it's all, it's a thing. But that world, I'm like, wait a second, like I can't actually understand the heads of department to then be like, yes, and then this guy plugs in this and then he collaborates here with this guy, but then this is actually just a robot and who knows. I Like I'm a little bit lost. I know. I want to be ahead of the April on this podcast. We, we've I'm got not. to get ahead of it. I think, it, yeah, no, we need to do a little LinkedIn because I feel like now there are jobs that are being advertised of people who just spend all day in AI putting in prompts and I think it's called like a prompt technician or something like yeah. that. Like there are actually roles I think in Google and a lot of those tech companies so they exist. I think we're kind of at the the infancy of that is your entire role is that you're a you're an AI generator, like prompt technician, and you're just kind of putting in these things and and spitting out the content at the other side. But it's a great question. Mm. You got people. People need to get back mm. to us. <laughs> Hello, anyone out there? Yeah, it's interactive. <laughs> so from all of this, like, where do you think that? the consumer's appetites going in terms of like five years, 10 years? Do you have any wild predictions about, oh, no, we won't see that anymore? Or yes, this is going to be fucking huge. It's a great question. I think it is to your point. It's all about kind of reinventing the wheel and surprise and delight. And people have, there is a fatigue about going to these luncheons and there's fatigue about going to the event and having the same experience. So how do we elevate it? How do we bring in new tech? How do we create takeaways for guests? Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, the democratization of access is not going away. I think people lived through the pandemic. Everything was online. Mm. They have an appetite and an expect, it's more of an expectation that they would be able to access everything 
everything. And you're seeing it even outside of experiential, like Can Lions, which is on at the moment. Historically, you would have had to spend tens of thousands of dollars to attend one of those. Yeah. And now the you conference can. conference is online. <laughs> exactly. The conference is online. And you're like, I can get the same level of information that these people who have flown over there do. Yeah. The I Adobe Max conference. <laughs> Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I just can't make it. Like, the, I just think the Adobe Max conference, which is so, like, it's so brilliant. And my Australian came out there so I heard brilliant. it. <laughs> so, so, oh, no, it came out. Oh, no, Cleo. No, no. Oh, no. Like, that conference, which is so brilliant. And historically, you would have to, like, you would have to go there. And during the pandemic, they thought, okay, there's an entire market out there of people who use our product, who we want to make sure continue to use our product. Mm. It really is like a sales conference when you think about it, because it's creating new technologies. They get firsthand experience with their customers. They get to show people who are at the top of their game in using those products, who do showcases and masterclasses and things like that you can dial into and listen to the talks and things like that. So I think... It's that, it's making it accessible to people wherever they are in the world, whatever time zone they're in. If you have, you know, internet access in a computer or a cell phone, you can be a part of the conversation and you can have access to clients or brands that you love or people that you want to be introduced to that you might have not have the access to. And I think this desire for authenticity is not going away either. Mm. I think it is even with the rise of TikTok, kind of the the turning away of Instagram and the rise of TikTok where it is so much authenticity and access isn't going away. And I think we're less about curation and we're more about relativity and feeling like, oh, I have, I mean, not on the parasocial relationship level, but kind of thinking, okay, they seem real. They seem relatable. What brands do they like? I'm kind of interested in that as well, aligning with their I think it is kind of that psychographic nature of like, what are they into? What's their attitude towards this? I align with that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's always going to be a desire to like get people together and have a rage and share (laughs) drinks and have a good meal and stuff like that. So that's not going away. I think it's just about what are the add-ons and the conveniences and the services and the hospitality that you can add into that to really level up the experience and make it unique. I had a poll up last night, the first one I've ever done on the Process the Podcast Instagram, which is very slim. Like I don't put much effort into the Instagram account, but I was like, what do you experience when you listen to this? Do you learn something? Are you inspired or do you just feel like it's two mates chatting? And the majority of people said all of the above or I feel like it's two mates chatting. And from that. Okay, that's great. (laughs) Now that I'm in this world of talking to brand sponsors and all that kind of stuff, the glue and what's really sticky about this, which I've always had an insecurity about I'm too candid and I'm not polished enough. Like the way that you speak about democratization of everything and da, 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 da. I don't have that speech habit or ability necessarily to clip my conversation and articulate. And I've I used to think it was to my detriment, like I'm just a bit of a larrikin in conversation. I know exactly what needs to be done on a project, but I don't articulate it in that way. And even when I work with clients, they're like, can you tidy up that language to make it more client appealing? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. Like it's just a first pass. Don't worry about it. But I've always had an insecurity around my 
ability to articulate at a very high brow level. And now I'm realizing that that's an absolute strength and how brands go about looking at that. Because in my own like process, the podcast brand, I've had to pivot and be like, it's fine that I do that because that's actually what people want. And then the guests bring in that world of their true expertise and articulation of their expertise. I am just the messenger. (laughs) So it's been just a vessel. Yeah. It's been fascinating to be like, no, no, that's actually a strength. And I'm going to, it'll be really interesting how brands leverage that in authenticity as well, because I work really closely with Kmart, for example, and there's a lot of red tape around what we can and can't do but then things keep popping up on TikTok and moments keep happening and they can't they don't have their verticals aren't set in a reactive enough way to be able to keep up with the demand of Gen Z like brand guidelines have to be so open and I think you've got to trust the people on the front line with the tools that are able to comment back or able to actually like speak on behalf of the brand finally brands have to actually kind of take a step back and be like Just don't use profanities, don't do this and don't do that and the rest is totally up to you. And it's huge in terms of trust. Huge in terms of trust and it's also like you engage me, you you kind of have to trust me, otherwise why did you engage me? It it sort of has to be like a two-way relationship and it's like if you want to micromanage me or you want helicopter around, there's no point in me being here because I'm bringing my expertise to the table and I am going to honour your brand and make sure that it is relevant and it speaks to the people that you know I relate to or that you want to have as a customer base and let it kind of fly you do Kmart's TikTok as well is that right yes so yes I went through something sort of a pickle um, personally in November of last year and I needed stability and the way that my business works I don't have that I've got kind of okay this campaign that campaign Australian brands aren't creating content enough to ever put somebody like me on a retainer. So Kmart swung in and were like, hey, you're too valuable to us to, and we need help. And essentially as a content creator, can you basically translate what you do to do the Kmart TikTok? And I do that and I love it. And I've learned more about TikTok just by at scale seeing that because they're like a fucking national treasure. It's crazy how much you can take on just from being on TikTok like the people that are like how do we do TikTok just go on TikTok and you'll get it you know yeah just it's, yeah you you have to learn through doing all of these yeah. things you have to just download it and have a go I, yeah. I know I love I love Kmart I was there I was in Australia over Christmas and I ran straight to Baker's Delight yes and I went to Kmart <laughs> and I went to Woolworths and I was like oh I had like the Red Rock Deli chips and I got my like I mean, it was just, it was heaven. It was so it's good. Home. But it's home. I had to go get my cheesy might scroll or something. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, golden, the golden gay times. Yeah. I think I ate like three gay times a day and I was like, when in Rome? Like we don't have these back in New York. Yes. They're so good. I wanted to ask about TikTok. Are you seeing deliverables and stuff? How are our world-class brands that you're dealing with approaching TikTok in terms of capturing these events and experiences that you guys are crafting? Yeah, we do a lot of live streaming. We do a lot mm-hmm. of content capture that then we then do overnight edits. So I think it's not it's not lo-fi. It still feels authentic to the brand and authentic to the te- attendees, but it is produced. Mm-hmm. So when we go up for like, you know, a YSL or a Bottega Veneta or a, or a Givenchy, it is an overnight edit. 
and using those channels and social sharing and making sure that it's up quickly. I think the immediacy, as you would know, is so important. It's kind of 90% of the responsibility and increases the success rate that you can jump on a trend or you can put something up immediately so people have access to it and can share it while, you know, the iron's still hot in a way. Mm -hmm. Are those brands shooting on cinema cameras or are they using iPhones for TikTok? It's it's cinema, particularly the fashion shows that we're live streaming and things like that. And then some of it, some of it is iPhone, but Mm -hmm. I think that's sort of an agglomeration of consumer content and captured content. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it is a, it is a mix, but yeah, then we have like the audio over the top and the soundtrack and all that kind of stuff. Yes. It's a beast. (laughs) It is a beast. And to, to your point about kind of the, the language and the nomenclature and ways to speak, I think it, it, depends on who you're talking to mm. and who the client is and kind of you know I mean you, you're the expert about in, of interviewing people but I think ahead of this conversation I was like can I swear does she swear, <laughs> can we, can we swear? because in my life like I actually swear quite a lot and I think it, I use yeah. it to punctuate conversations but yeah certainly <laughs> when I'm pitching I'm not swearing and I'm sort of trying to level up and and pay homage to the brand but you've got to just feel it out I think it's a bit of you know empathy maybe I should put that in my like brand guidelines <laughs> can, can swear welcome swear. swearing yes, absolutely <laughs> yeah so yeah. I know my listenership quite intimately and they're gorgeous creatives either working in their own small businesses or kind of the PR landscape and I think that experiential is going to inspire this conversation I know will inspire them for their next event and how to be forward thinking and how to surprise and delight and kind of go above and beyond what's already happening when even when you do gifting and stuff like that like do you just put it in a box with some nice tissue paper or like how can we really like the adore beauty tim tam I had Chelsea Healy on the podcast the other week and she was like it was just an accident like she just did it once and then everybody was obsessed with it so now it's iconic that adore beauty send every order gets a tim tam and sometimes I'll choose adore beauty over mecca because I'm hungry like it's so dumb (laughs) you're like I know there's a built-in snack yeah literally so maybe start with the gifting piece on I feel like that's probably one of the most approachable for a small business to actually take advice and take learnings and implement. And then if you have anything, any advice on the event side, that would also be incredible. Yeah. Your your comment about the, the Tim Tam is making me think of, I remember reading um, Keith McNally, who used to own and operate or maybe still does Balthazar in New York City. Yes. And he had a really rich and kind of prolific clientele. And he told a story about if you kind of surprise people every now and again, they'll actually appreciate it more than if you set a precedent of like giving them a free drink when they come in the door. And if yeah. one day you don't give them a free drink, they'll kind of actually be more turned off than if you just surprise them every now and again. Yeah. So I think it's interesting and a door can never stop sending to me. Yeah. Now they've backed themselves <laughs> into a corner, yeah, but now they've set the expectation, which is working for them. Look, I wonder how many people get that instead of the, the other competitors. Yeah. It's a great edge. Small businesses, I would say... One of the great things about experiential it is, it is that it is scalable and you can do anything from doing a seeding kit and maybe it is shipping them a seeding kit or maybe you send 
someone to deliver it to them mm. and there's a whole song and dance or there's balloons or they roll up and it's this kind of big production like and the maybe cartier vibe how the... cartier sends bellboys yes I'm exactly like, one day i'll exactly. get a bellboy <laughs> one day you'll get a bellboy and i don't know if you saw but actually parent when paramount plus launched in australia they were inspired by the cartier bellboys and they actually did a, a personal delivery that had kind of balloons and had, you know, so it's sort of like steal steal from the people or or copy the people that you think are really successful and then put your twist onto it. And maybe it's not a bellboy dressed in, you know, the Cartier red and gold and maybe it's a, you know, a mascot character or a cartoon character or someone that shows up that you're, you know, they do those cameos and things like Mm. that. Maybe it's someone that is aligned with the brand that could be fantastic or it's an influence, a top tier influence that shows up to your house and says like, get in, we're going shopping. (laughs) whatever you know what I mean and kind of make make it more personal so it's not just someone's delivered a box on your doorstep and you get to open it up and you get a bottle of tequila and two shot glasses or whatever it is so I think it's it's scalable for small businesses I think to start out you need to identify what your budget is how much money can you actually outlay how much are you willing to spend and then what's the why like what are you Mm. what are you kind of trying why are you putting it on why are you putting on it why are you choosing experiential over doing an influencer partnership maybe what do you want to get out of it kind of what are your loose kpis if you don't have tangible kpis do you want to create brand awareness do you want to interact with your customers face to face do you want to encourage engagement are you trying to convert customers are you selling a product like what's the incentive for attendance is really what you have to establish because otherwise it's going to feel half-hearted. You might start spending the money and you're like, I don't really get anything out of this. I don't Mm. really know what we're doing it for. So I would say, yes, make it as personal as you can. Democratize the access because you're going to get greater longevity if you put on something small and you live stream it or you have influencers that you have engaged and you say, can you share this content? Like here's what we want to get out of it. Be intentional with what your asks are. Engage the right people who feel aligned with your brand because that's going to get a lot of organic traction Mm. just through sharing and making sure that, you know, because you're like, well, their audience is kind of our audience. So that's going to lead to a lot of conversion or eyes. And then they might come and follow us. Whereas if you're engaging or you're partnering with a musician or a talent or an influencer that perhaps is not aligned Mm -hmm. or not affiliated, it might be a waste of money and energy for both of you, for the influencer and for the brand. I would say also... You know, if you don't have money to do a full blown out event, maybe it is a luncheon. If you don't have money to do a luncheon, maybe it's that seating kit. If you don't have money to throw a concert, how can you partner with maybe the venue? How can you provide transport to the venue, Mm. identify what your customer base is doing, what they're interested in and try and align with those brands or experiences? If you want to maybe just sponsor a bar at an event Mm. that you think could be a, a attracted to your customers I think it's also you know you can do things depending on whether you have a product or a a venue or a service you could permit the sidewalk outside your store and have a lemonade stand or an ice cream cart or a popsicle yeah a popsicle cart we've done that for a lot of luxury clients especially in the summer over here in New York when everyone is out and about Mm. And you can offer them like you have a coffee cart or you have a popsicle cart and now you can do the popsicles that have the logos, you know, in the ice. So you're getting that photogenic moment and you're also giving customers something to take away. Then you also have that element of Beta-Meinhof, which is the phenomenon where once you see something, you continue to see it. Yeah. You know, you might see a blue car and then for the rest of the month you see blue cars everywhere or you see a brand 
on a billboard and then you like might see the store and you see someone wearing it and your mind is sort of track you know it has that traction yeah and a popsicle cart is like okay it's quite simple it's quite easy to execute it's just permitting the sidewalk and maybe bringing in a cart but you see people walking around Soho with a Givenchy branded popsicle and you're like oh where did you get those from or yeah you know and there's like thousands of them all over the city and Soho is particularly like a melting pot for influencers so it's a highly attractive area you're capturing a lot of foot traffic you're leveraging natural organic foot traffic and does everybody go into the store maybe not but you still get that brand recognition Mm. and it's socially shareable it goes viral we also have a lot of experiential influencers over here who you follow on TikTok and Instagram intentionally and they'll be like, here's what's happening this weekend. You have this pop-up, you have this pop-up, you have this pop-up. So you can kind of like almost traverse the entire city and go to all these brand pop-ups and like get your swag, get your goodies, enjoy your drink, whatever it is. So there's demand for that as well. There is an expectation of that. I love that. Popsicle's so clever and not a big expense, but huge impact. Or the coffee cart or whatever. Not a big expense. Mm. I love that. So being somebody that worked around like CM and Baz, to be a fly on the a wall in a room with them, the stuff that they would reference and your appetite to absorb what they were taking, like the stuff that they were absorbing would have been so extreme. And I'm always really curious to understand what other people that are highly creative and thriving in their own careers, what they take in and what they're absorbing and what's actually inspiring them. Mm-hmm. What is some of the stuff like the trades? Like, what are you reading? Where do you, how do you stay on top of your game? Yes, it's a good question. I think creative burnout is such a big thing. And for me, a way to avoid the creative burnout Mm -hmm. and kind of the tiresome nature and kind of the onerous of like, okay, it's another pitch. They want surprise and delight. They want it to go viral. (laughs) They want the KPIs. They want to sell product, like tick all the boxes. Um, And it also has to be built and on budget. I think for me, It's like filling the creative well and making sure that when the request comes in, you're kind of like, oh, I just saw this thing or I saw that, you know, and it's not just like, oh, I'm starting from scratch every single time. Mm -hmm. Inspiration for me comes from everywhere. I think I am like single-handedly keeping the publishing business (laughs) in business. (laughs) I have like all of Condé Nast magazines. I still get Cosmopolitan delivered. I'm like, what are the kids doing? What are the 17 year olds like? What are the 13 year olds reading? Yeah. You know, subscribing to like Adweek, Ad Age, Dezine, Architectural Digest is such a wealth of information, wallpaper, frame. I think even I have like signed up to there's something called The Dots, which is London based, mm. and they send out a newsletter at the top of every week who are like, here are the events and activations and workshops that you can attend and the majority of them are in person so I can't attend but again that level of access there are some things that's on posted on Google or you can dial in and hear from your peers or hear from people in a brand that you're maybe inspired by and understand what their process is and what kind of they go through and their priorities and what they're looking for that's coming around the bend that you can sort of attach to and and leverage in your own projects I I really think it's I mean, it's even Pinterest, going through Pinterest, I think I'm constantly inspired by the people around me and the creatives in this business. And I do enjoy getting up from the desk and going for walks. And I think I'm, you know, privileged to be in this city where something's always happening. There's like Broadway shows and Mm. you have this and you can go outside and there's a mural billboard and there's something going on in Times Square and the Empire State Building's lit up and there's something happening downtown and there's a new restaurant and all this kind of stuff. So it's, 
it can sometimes be like overdrive of things Mm. happening but part of it is editing and I think you may see something and just by osmosis it kind of bleeds into your brain and you're like okay maybe I'll take a photo of that maybe it'll come back later maybe I'll take a picture of the maybe it's like a QR code activation maybe it's an AR filter which we're also doing quite a lot of as well sort of bringing billboards to life and bringing murals to life through QR codes Mm. I was just in Mexico City last week and I think they are you know the culinary capital of the world right now and I think their restaurants and their restaurant design and their plating and their hospitality is so incredible and so inspiring and interior design lighting design decor all that it just it's all components of creativity and design and design direction and experiential Mm -hmm. and we've got to create lounges and we've got to create tables and lighting effects and atmosphere and environments yeah I feel like it gets missed a little bit certainly in the Australian scene how curated restaurants are and the thought behind every even swatches of like a pillow and where that print draws your eye. My mum's in interiors of hotels and I totally get it. It's wild, the detail. And it's a shame, I feel like, because Australians don't necessarily have that appreciation. There's a, I mean, of course there are. A crea- when, if you're creative, I think you get it. But I'm very excited to hear about Mexico City. That's crazy. I didn't realise that that was. Mexico City, yeah. <clears throat> I didn't realise it was, it was in it- such demand. That's so cool. I think it's incredible. I think a lot of the chefs that are down there at the moment were formally trained mm-hmm. under Michelin star chefs. And then during the pandemic, when kind of everything closed down, they moved back to Mexico City and kind of and opened up their own restaurants. Oh, so they have that classical training and they're pushing boundaries. And I think sometimes in New York, particularly with the price of everything and the cost of leasing and the cost, you know, the profit profit margins in hospitality and yes. restaurants are so small cooked. anyway you really have to like be ballsy yes it's 100% cooked you have to you have to have the balls to even open something yeah. let alone stay the course and so I think maybe there is a pattern that's happening of risk aversion and just not pushing the boundaries over here because everything costs so much and it's like okay we really need to like make it over the past year you know make it past the year mark mm. and do all this so it's a little bit of a like a toe the line do something that's appealing that has mass appeal easy to make quick yeah you know can be supplied at a pinch but yeah as far as restaurant design I think it is you're creating an atmosphere it also has to be incredibly practical yeah because people have to get around and you have like to be your, able to clean up at the end of the day you have to like tip that table your upside staff down have to get around. for the vacuum 100% Exactly. You want to be, you want to have cushions that are stain resistant that, you know, can be like pushed around because the guests, I think that's the thing about events. It's like you can curate an environment to the nth degree, but once those doors open, it belongs to the guests and the guests are going to flip the chairs. They're going to throw the cushions on the ground. They're going to like tip things up. They're going to (laughs) shuffle. They're going to rearrange everything to suit themselves. So they can have like a mingle and a, it just, you've got to like give up. You've got to just like relinquish and release the piece and be like, it belongs to them now. It's their space. (laughs) Please don't trash it. (laughs) Release the piece. Yeah. Try to try not to break anything. So what are you working on at the moment? Okay. At the moment, we have like 10 or so different projects. We're working with a watch company out of Switzerland. We're mm-hmm. doing a two-week exhibition for them, which is really beautiful. We're working through programming with them right now because, again, there's an exhibit component, mm-hmm. but there's also 
it has to be photogenic. We want people to come in and stay. So like, what's the programming? Do we have workshops? Do we have guest speakers? Mm -hmm. Do we have a hologram that kind of spins and the watch breaks apart and then it comes back together again? How do you make it interactive and appealing? Also to multi-generations as well. I think that's the thing about exhibition design. You've got to think about, is it all age groups? Like how high are the words? They have to be read by everyone. True. What's the kind of access? Like, are they traversing this way? Do you want to kind of guide them? Are there docents that are explaining something to them? Mm Is it for the elderly? How big do the letters need to be? What's the content? What's the audio? Is it is it too loud? Like, is it the lights yeah. flashing? Is that okay? There's so many different things that come into it. I'm dealing with that at the moment with video editing of like the speed that TikTok's expectations are. It's like, yeah, we fucking get it. Like this shot's one second. It should just be 0.06 of a second. If we're doing something like launching a new product it's a quick shot and then you get millennials or even older like boomers watching something and they're like and usually it's their approvals and they're like oh my god that was so fast and you're like yeah it's tiktok like catch up and it's crazy finding that balance of like even down and i don't know i still haven't cracked the code of what to say to them because i'm like you're fucking old that's why it's fast like catch up yeah you're like just trust me i know it's it's totally i think we've had requests sometimes and they're like we want you to do a 90 second tiktok video and we're like nobody's gonna watch it 90 seconds like (laughs) 30 seconds at the most and it's like that's where that relational that's where that trust comes in and you're like please just trust us that we're not going to make a 90 second video because no one's going to stick to it then your metrics are going to go down and the algorithm's going to reject you and like you never see the light of day again so many moving parts it's a full follow-on effect I mean yeah you would know you would know better than anyone but it's trying to convey that message to people who aren't inherently you know, on the platforms, mm. maybe don't have TikTok on their phone, uh, only know about it because their, you know, kid has it on their phone or whatever and bridging that gap and doing it in a respectful way, but a way that you're like, guys, what are we talking about? Um, please let me, yeah. let me save that PDF for you and then we can, I uh, know it is, it's challenging. Or when you're showing someone a video, I feel like it's that vibe where you show your your parent the video and, and you're like isn't this funny and they're like is that you and you're like no it's somebody else and they're like do you know that person and you're like no it's just a funny video just appreciate it yeah I 100% and get it like, what what is it what's the what's the relativity to me I'm like oh, nothing no, no, it was no, just I'm viral and now I'm walking off exactly. because you suck yeah exactly. <laughs> now I need to go have a decompression moment because I'm frustrated <laughs> my nervous system is spiked with this experience fuck off yeah exactly exactly it's like my apple watch is telling me that my heart rate's above 120 <laughs> to go sit down I, I, I know, yeah i know that so all too well. like, is that you no it's, re- it's really frustrating <laughs> you've got to temper it but we have to keep this in mind so that when we're that age and people are telling us new technologies oh. we're like just run with it we trust you yeah definitely i don't want to think about us it at will that happen. age <laughs> i know i know so Yes, the working out, it's fascinating that you've got to think of like the heights of the person reading it and then like the old people coming through and like make, that's so cool that you've got to think about that. Yeah, and kind of like we, we, it needs to be wheelchair accessible mm. and making sure that it's accessible to everybody and that there are no kind of barriers to anybody coming in and trying to enjoy it and read it and appreciate it and interact with it as well because it's like if there's kids, mm. how appealing is this? really to just have your photo taken like can we add a level of tactility into it so they can roll around on it or is it 
is it a do they lay down and the camera is above rather than front on and that adds kind of an element of dynamism that it didn't right. exist before and bringing that that moment to them can they kind of roll around on the astroturf and have their photo taken or can they come down a slide and it's kind of an action shot of them coming down a slide into a ball pit and maybe the output is there's a layer of kind of splash or water that looks like it's on the lens as well. Mm. So I think there are moments that it might be a potentially simple execution, but the takeaway is exciting to share and it's fun to do in the moment as well. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. And any others, like what's your dream? I want to know your dream before we wrap up. Like what is your dream project to work on? Oh, that's a good question. I used to think, it's funny, you're going to laugh at me. I used to think Victoria's Secret fashion show was my dream. Before I moved to New York, I was like, I really want to design that fashion show because it was kind of the culmination of costume and festivity and musical talent. And they had these really outlandish set designs that felt incredibly theatrical and kind of whimsical. I'm like, that's fucking cool. And then when I moved over here, they're like, oh, the fashion shows, you know, there's all this sort of stuff happening on the behind the scenes. So we're going to cut the show. But I think generally anything live broadcast, any concerts, any stage shows, I really love designing. And I think part of it is its community and it's kind of, it feels everyone's kind of having an experience, you know, it's, you might have 80,000 people in a stadium or Mm. you might have, you might be doing like the MTV VMAs or you might be doing the Grammys or you might be doing Eurovision And it's that culmination of musical performance, incredible lighting design, stage production, the kind of technical movements that happen behind the scenes of the set changeover Mm. and things like that. And then you also have this incredible moment where the audience is experiencing it live and you get to kind of experience it with them and be like, how incredible. I mean, again, with the cell phones, everybody's experiencing it through the cell phones as well. So it has a level of longevity to it. But I think live broadcast, live events, concerts are really, for me, the the pinnacle of what I've done and what yeah. I want to do more of in the future. And the scale of it as well, I think is so impressive. And if you, you know, I was talking to someone the other day, the Taylor Swift concert has put almost $5 billion into the economy. Wow. Purely because of her sold out shows and like all the hotel blocks and the transportation and the merchandise and the hospitality sales and ticket sales and airfares and things that you don't even think about are all affected and impacted by live concerts. Yeah. So it has an entire economy to it and it gives so many jobs into the business and it provides such an incredible experience for people you know see on tiktok all these dads that are taking their daughters to these concerts and having like life-changing experiences and you will just never forget that i love it never forget it and your dad's bought you all the merch and you've got the t-shirt and friends of mine went to the you know they're so unexpectedly swifties that i would never have put them in that category and they still wear the bracelets and they were saying (gasps) It's so incredible because you go there and it's this really supportive environment and everybody makes these charm bracelets and they swap them and all the bracelets have the names of the songs and you can like meet someone in the, you know, on the queue and swap your bracelets and then you find someone else and you're like, I'll swap you a bracelet. So it's almost like, it's almost like an in-kind economy. Like it's an economy inside of an economy. Was the bracelets a strategy? How did that happen? I don't know. I don't, I mean, if it was a strategy, it's a brilliant strategy because then that in and of itself is authentic. It's organic and there's no kind of money exchanged. It's, it's just sort of an in-kind exchange and it gives you an interaction with other people and they're like, I've never felt so safe. I've never felt so supported. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I was like, maybe I should go. But again, like I'm spoiled because I have Madison Square Garden here and it's like yeah. Drake one night, Beyonce the next night, Anderson Pack the next night. You've got the like the Cures playing, Fred again. I just want a so Swifty bracelet. Just... I'd be fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, has she come to Australia yet? When is no, she can't, get the tickets there. are on sale today, tomorrow. I've seen oh, on the stories. There. I know. I'm kind of like, do I though? Because aren't tickets like 600 bucks? I don't know. I don't. I mean, there was a big debacle over here because they weren't, yes, they were being bought by bots and then resold so mm-hmm. that was a big that was a big drama I don't know about the Australian market but I feel like you're wasting time talking to me <laughs> get on ticket deck <laughs> you've got you've got like a separate window of like counting down I've you're got just screens. like anyway, I'm count- good. So anyway that's nice we're gonna wrap this chat up we're gonna go get some ticks <laughs> yeah seriously I've gotta go start making my beaded bracelets to trade you're gonna have a full arm of like name bracelets that's so me but too. I just I think I it's like it's shit. so bad <laughs> You brick of you love a brick of rack. You love crafts. a bracelet. Mm. Oh, love a craft, love a craft. You I know. would. You I were a costume designer during the pandemic. <laughs> I know, true, true. Amazing. Well, yeah. On that note, our mutual love for craft. <laughs> I feel. Like I know just, we have to share. We have to be like. I feel like I've just taken up yeah, so no, much. Of your, I've taken up so much of your time, and also we started this chat at nine a.m. this morning. It's now nine. I mean, eight a.m. this morning, my time. It's now nine thirty. I'm like, fuck! I got a whole day ahead of me. <laughs> I know you. Do. Have you even had your coffee yet? I don't know. Yes, I have. I'm here, but I'm ready for my second for sure. Oh my god! Well, you look great. You can't tell that it's eight a.m. <laughs> yeah. What time is it there? It's uh, just gone seven thirty okay. in the evening Amazing. on Tuesday. What are you doing for the rest of the night? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think I'll go out on a sanity walk, um, which is just a walk around the neighborhood, some fresh air. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just sort of acclimate. Coming back from Mexico, the flight was delayed. So I didn't get in until 3 a.m. So I might have a little, I'm a little discombobulated. Okay, good. I'm I'm glad it wasn't me that you need to go have a sanity walk over. No, 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 not you. Not you. No, I'll just hang up and be like, oh my God, all the things that I wish I'd said and I didn't in the moment. I could, could, could write a novel on all the regrets. No. Well, if you have any, you, you can just you. tell me what they are and I'll, I can add them into the show notes or I can write them on social. Just, du- just dub them in. <laughs> I'm just going to dub them in. Anyway, RL, so I was thinking that maybe AI could do it. Just terrible dub over. Yeah, get out. I mean, Who's to say this is an AI? You never know. Am I real? My, my likeness. Actually, I don't know if you've seen the new Black Mirror. I watched it last like night. Fully the last Greenberry night. episode. Yes. It's so intense. Yeah. I was like, oh, God, who's watching? Yeah, terrifying. No, this, no, this, no sanity walks from this. I had a, I had a fantastic time and I appreciate you bringing me on. <laughs> okay, basic. I hope you guys loved this episode with Kate Roberts. I feel like I've got a new friend out of it. I can't wait to go back to New York and hang out with her. As always, if you loved this episode, please share it with a friend. Process the Podcast is still a baby, so we need all the love that we can get. If you loved it, I'd love you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps others find this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Process the Podcast, and I'll see you next Sunday.